Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to When Diplomacy Fails' series on the Thirty Years' War, Episode 4. Thanks to the complicated and contradictory rulings on inheritance, which were laid down in the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, the death of a childless ruler in Europe always led to concerns that things might just get out of hand. The death of the ruling Duke of Ulick-Cleve-Berg, three united duchies in a strategically important position in Europe, right at the time when the Protestants and Catholics had placed themselves into armed leagues, seemed like the spark to light the tinderbox, which had been swelling with flammable material since the middle of the 16th century. In this episode, we see how that succession crisis drew in not just princes of the empire, but also the interests of the Dutch and Spanish, who were then fighting their own 80 years war, and the French, led by King Henry IV, who had his own plans for the Habsburgs in both corners of the continent. Ulick Cleave had created the latest theatre where all of the continent's elements could stand in opposition to their enemies and in league with their allies. The French, cooperating with the Dutch, and the Habsburgs, with both branches cooperating together, argued for different candidates to succeed the lucrative but disunited duchies, which stretched across the Dutch border. With the Habsburgs selecting a Catholic candidate, predictably enough, and the Franco-Dutch camp selecting a Protestant one, the religious and constitutional tensions endured by German princes within the Holy Roman Empire seem to have been brought out onto the stage of European politics. It was all connected. The antagonism felt by the Dutch and French towards Spain had compelled them to choose a candidate which would not benefit Madrid. Henry IV of France certainly didn't want to see the Spanish expand their influence and land portfolio in such a sensitive region, and although the Dutch had been in the process of negotiating a peace, with the Spanish from 1609, Dutch officials were wholly opposed to the Spanish installing themselves along their southern border for 
very obvious reasons. The interconnectedness of these rivalries has led one historian to even argue that the Thirty Years' War could quite reasonably be framed as beginning in 1609 rather than 1618. While this has not been wholly accepted since the ulick cleave succession crisis resulted in a brief conflict that was quickly contained, another idea did gain acceptance and frames how we view the Thirty Years' War to this day. Among English-speaking scholars and accounts of the Thirty Years' War, a Western perspective of what transpired between 1618-48 to and why it transpired at all is provided. This perspective links the competing powers and leading figures together in a swirling vortex of violence, military strategy and diplomacy. Different schools of thought exist as to exactly how international, German or even French the Thirty Years' War was, but as usual with these competing schools of thought, the history is never so black and white and it rests somewhere in between the uncompromising debates. We don't want to get bogged down in historiographical debates, so we're going to look in a bit more detail at exactly what the ulick cleave crisis was and how the competing camps got involved in the dispute. As we'll see, the crisis didn't merely provide an excuse for the Protestant and Catholic factions to get at one another, it also provided the perfect opportunity to persuade hesitant or uncommitted German potentates on either side to join, out of fear of being left out in the cold, if the crisis did escalate. Maximilian of Bavaria was the Duke of arguably the most important entity in the Holy Roman Empire. Succeeding his father William in 1597, Maximilian would rule Bavaria throughout the Thirty Years' War, and he would elevate his lands from a mere duchy to that of an electorate largely at the expense of the Elector Palatine, to whom he was distantly related since they hailed from the same Wittelsbach family. Maximilian was staunchly Catholic and a determined ally of the Habsburgs. In time he would tie his fortunes to those of the Emperor, Ferdinand II, but at the turn of the century, Maximilian was focused on cultivating Bavaria's resources as well as its wealth. This was a task he quickly excelled at. Through frugality and firmness, Maximilian Bavaria would accumulate a small fortune of roughly 5 million florins by the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War, a feat which identified him as a formidable figure in European politics. His political and financial acumen enabled him to wrest still more concessions out of potential allies, such as, most notably of all, the Habsburgs, but he was also in a position quite unlike that of his peers on the continent. Maximilian of Bavaria, in the words of Geoffrey Parker, had money to put where his mouth was. Maximilian had been present to lead the charge to the imperial free city of Donauwörth, and his occupation of that city in December 1607, followed by the highly unconstitutional annexation of it into Bavaria the following year, illustrated the Duke of Bavaria's lack of scruples when it came to enlarging his domains. His staunch Catholicism had compelled him to take a leading role in the formation and guidance of the Catholic League, yet it was also true that Maximilian's resources were necessary to give this League the power to compete with its Protestant rivals on the imperial stage. The advantages Maximilian brought to the table were such that he was able to demand a high price from sympathetic Catholic rulers, and once the Ulick-Cleave crisis began on schedule in early 1609, 
those powers who had yet to join, such as the three Rhineland electors of Mines, Cologne and Trier, all followed suit. In short, by the end of July 1610, Maximilian had forged, through pressure, persuasion and the passage of tense developments, a genuine threat to the Protestant Union and a strong platform upon which Catholic policy could stand. His efforts were duly noted by the Catholic King of Spain, Philip III, who accepted a position as protector of the Catholic League, and he sent subsidies to support its further empowering. Yet the Protestant or Evangelical Union that arrived to the Catholic League had not been twiddling its thumbs while Maximilian so expanded its interests and reach. After the Evangelical Union had walked out of the Imperial Diet in April 1608, the disgusted Protestant princes gathered themselves into a defensive league the following month, with the Elector of the Palatinate, the Calvinist Frederick IV, as their leader. The Union was composed of Calvinist princes as well as Lutheran cities in the south of Germany, so it wasn't that unusual that the Calvinist Palatine Elector Frederick was their leader. Every other interested or concerned Protestant potentate could join if they desired. The Union represented a truce of sorts between Lutherans and Calvinists who had bitterly opposed one another in the years since 1555, but who collectively, with some exceptions of course, began to value cooperation in the face of increasing militarism of the Catholic powers. The ultra-Catholic Ferdinand of Styria, soon to be Emperor Ferdinand II, had presided over the imperial diet of 1608, and the Protestants who had gathered there had not liked what they had seen. Their union soon contained nine princes and 17 imperial cities, and Frederick IV of the Palatinate was its director, with Christian of Anhalt, a native of the Upper Palatinate, serving as its commander, since it would have been impossible for an elector to risk his serene person in war. In the event, it seems that the formation of the Protestant Union compelled the Catholics to respond and form their own defensive Catholic League, which they did two years later, but the Protestants would argue fiercely that they had responded to the Catholic aggression and unconstitutional behaviour first after that whole Donverth incident, and that this mess was one of the Duke of Bavaria's making. On the 25th of March 1609, the Duke of Cleve, Ulick, Mark and Berg died, leaving these scattered territories without a ruler. These duchies had long been recognised for the wealth and importance that they had, the opportunity to marry into the Duke of Cleves family had compelled Thomas Cromwell, of all people, to arrange a marriage between Anne of Cleve and Henry VIII. The marriage did not last, as I'm sure you know, and the strategic advantages which Thomas Cromwell had anticipated did not quite materialise, but the episode still says much about how high in the estimations of Europe Cleves' power was believed to be. As one historian put it, the late Duke's territories, those duchies of Cleve, Ulick, Berg and Mark, were not large, but they were densely populated, wealthy and strategically located astride the Meuse and the River Rhine. At stake were the borders of the Spanish Netherlands and the United Dutch provinces, a significant stretch of the Rhine, the fate of the developing Counter-Reformation in Cologne and Westphalia, and an important link in the Spanish and Austrian supply lines. The question of succession was a lawyer's dream, but a politician's nightmare.
Thanks to marriage and inheritance, Cleve was adjoined to other duchies by 1609 and united under one duke, which only served to further increase its appeal. The emperor, Rudolf II, summoned the two claimants to the duchies to solve the quarrel before it escalated, but initially, the succession crisis was not religiously charged. The two claimants, descending through the sisters of the late duke, happened to both be Lutherans, and thus their rivalry alone would not create friction among the two religious camps or their sponsors. Instead, it was the heavy-handedness of the emperor, who had sent his cousin Leopold with some troops to the duchies, that inflamed tensions. You see, Leopold had been a cousin of the late duke, and he intended to stake his claim, an occasion which had the potential to cause conflict among not merely the other claimants, but also the rivals of the Habsburgs who would not have appreciated that dynasty once again expanding at their expense. It did not seem to have occurred to Emperor Rudolf that a belligerent policy was the very last thing which his family's image could afford. Not only that, before permitting his cousin Leopold to march to Cleve, the Emperor did not pause to think of the contacts of the two Lutheran claimants. Both claimants could draw on support from the Protestant Union, and the forces of that alliance agreed to attack Habsburg garrisons and the duchies in support of the two claimants, who had both seemingly been leapfrogged by the emperor's boorish behaviour. And the Union was not the only power to begin preparing its forces. The King of France, Henry IV, was also gathering his army in the northeast frontier. The great what-if question which has surfaced ever since is one which asks... What would have happened to the Thirty Years' War and European history if King Henry IV of France had not been assassinated while travelling to join his troops on the 14th of May, 1610? Indeed, Henry's departure at a time when the Catholic League in support of the Emperor and the Protestant Union in support of the Lutheran candidates were both apparently careening towards conflict seemed to silence that crisis in almost an instant By September 1610, the duchies would be divided between the two claimants, and the Habsburg troops would be removed, and that large French army, whatever Henry had planned to use it for, was disbanded. Eudic Cleve did not vanish from the European consciousness. It surfaced again in 1614, when one of the Lutheran claimants converted to Calvinism, and this claimant, who also happened to be the elector of Brandenburg, decided to just occupy the Duchy of Eulich with Dutch assistance in a kind of fait accompli. Since the elector claimant was in receipt of Dutch help, the other Lutheran claimant, the Count Palatine of Newburgh, who we haven't met before, so don't worry if you don't remember his name, he determined to convert himself to gain some useful allies also, but he didn't think Calvinism was right for him. Oh no, he decided to convert to Catholicism instead. Not only that, but to double ensure his future success, the Count of Newburgh married the sister of Maximilian of Bavaria, and in the process, he seemed to invite a war over the duchies once more. By 1614, the Eulich Cleave crisis has been going on in the background, but it didn't seem as though there would be much cause for conflict, since up to that point at least, the two claimants had been of the same religion, and it didn't necessarily have to be a religiously charged crisis. Now though, As you can see, with one claimant being Calvinist, the other being Catholic, all bets were off. 
In November 1614, the Treaty of Xanten was signed, which granted Cleve and the Mark to Brandenburg, with Ulick and Berg going to the other newly Catholic duke. In 1616, matters were complicated again when the Dutch purchased the right off of Brandenburg to defend these lands, which essentially meant the right to occupy them. Through this arrangement, the Dutch would increase the depth of their defences against any Spanish attacks from the Rhine, and the Elector of Brandenburg would be set up to receive regular subsidies and be freed from paying for the defence of these sprawling lands. In such a way, where the lands of electors and dukes increased, and mutually. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Beneficial arrangements were made. Much like those European powers in the first few years of the 17th century, it helps as a podcaster to have some allies. And I'm very happy to say, to remind you in case you didn't know, that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. And every now and then, well actually every month, but I'm very bad at remembering to do this, we are supposed to remind you of this fact and also to remind you that each month we have a specific podcast a specific member of the Agora Podcast Network, that is, that we are supposed to, well, introduce to you, if you don't know them already, and encourage you to go and visit. This month, in January, so I've only just started to get around to doing this, which is a bit embarrassing, but my Agora Podcast allies are thankfully very forgiving and not very belligerent, so it's all grand. But this month, we are looking at the Cannonball. And in case you're wondering what the cannonball is, it's nothing to do with cannons or balls, it's to do with historical literature. And to explain this a little bit better, have a listen to this clip. In 1994, Yale literary critic Harold Bloom created a massive list of the works he considered the standards of Western literature, beginning with the Bible. In 2016, two overly educated autodidacts, one a professional, the other an interested layman, set out to read every book on the list. 
Thus was born The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read every book in Bloom's list and along the way explore the whole notion of a canon to begin with. From Dante's Inferno to Ibsen's Dollhouse, from Don Quixote's Extremadura to Elizabeth Bennet's Hertfordshire, Join Daniel and Claude as they provide critical commentary, analysis, and from-the-gut personal reactions for all of the books you are too lazy or hungover to read in undergrad. That's The Cannonball. So I hope you'll check out The Cannonball, and thanks again to those allies of the Agora Podcast Network who make the practice of podcasting just that little bit less lonely and daunting. But back to the Ulick cleave succession crisis. When it first developed in 1609, King Henry IV had been forced to tread carefully. He had only recently brokered a truce between the Spanish and Dutch, a truce which was to last 12 years, and expired just in time to escalate the conflict in the Holy Roman Empire in 1621. You see, Henry's diplomatic strategy up to 1609 had been to bring about peace and settlement in Europe, and to prepare his country at the same time for any resumption in hostilities which might arise in the future. The French strategy was disarmingly simple. Cut the Spanish supply route to its sprawling duchies and dependencies in the Netherlands, along the Rhine and in North Italy. The so-called Spanish Road was the land route which tied these disparate entities to the Spanish crown and ensured that, at a galloping pace, Spanish communiques, reinforcements and supplies could be delivered in what was, in this era, relatively quick time. It was impossible for Henry to ignore this route if he wished to undermine the Spanish position. He certainly could not afford to ignore the 10,000 Spanish soldiers in Italy or the 50,000 in the Spanish Netherlands, not to mention the legions of supplicant German vassals that were kept sweet and cooperative precisely because Spain was capable of reaching out to them. From Milan to Brussels, the Spanish road remained the lifeline of Madrid's interests and her government was keen to ensure that it was secured from disruption. Spanish control over Lombardy in North Italy and Lorraine along the Rhine aided this quest for security, as did alliances with the Duke of Savoy and the geographic positioning of the Spanish Netherlands. France was effectively surrounded on all sides, aside from the sea of course, and choked until this situation was dealt with, and one of Henry's first acts as king had been to orchestrate a lightning war against the Duke of Savoy in the year 1600, which enabled France to watch over the Spanish road and police the critically important passes through the Italian valleys in the name of the Duke of Savoy, even if they could not own and directly administer the land. But how would Henry manage to do this? How would he manage to launch a lightning war before Savoy's Spanish ally had responded to the threat? Well, he had managed to do it because he had been prepared. Henry had mobilised 50,000 men and moved them against the Duke's critical bastions in Saluzzo and Bress before the Duke's Spanish allies could muster themselves in response. In early 1601, having acquired the advantages he wanted, Henry established French power in Saluzzo along the border of Savoy, which enabled him to watch over the Spanish ally of Savoy, as well as keep a vigil on the Spanish road. That same year, Henry accepted papal arbitration, and ended this fantastically successful but mostly forgotten war. With the opportunity to pounce on the Spanish supply line at the first sniff of war, Henry had done French logistics a great service. And he had placed Madrid in a serious quandary. 
Since 1601, Philip III's government was forced to grapple with this dilemma and the threat of France suddenly severing the Spanish road. But this threat was never realised, even as Spain struggled against the tenacious Dutch foe. By early 1609, you see, the French had helped to mediate a truce, and the pressure on the Spanish road slackened. But what was Henry's aim in the first decade of the 17th century? On the one hand, the strategy of lurking near to the Spanish road meant that Spain was always wary of the French threat, but on the other, Henry never gained any practical advantages from this strategic triumph. Far from preparing for war, indeed, Henry was mobilising all of France's resources for the sake of peace. A succession of spats between different actors were solved by French mediation. King James I of England and the papacy had their rift healed, Venice and the papacy were also made to come to terms, and even that bitter war between the Spanish and Dutch, which we'll look at in more detail in the next episode, was brought to a temporary end too. We could be forgiven for thinking that with this policy of forging peace between his neighbours and settling their disputes, the King of France had decided on a more pacific course. It thus appears contradictory then for Henry to decide in late 1609, after the Dutch-Spanish truce had been signed, to support the Protestant claimants in the Ulic cleave crisis, even at the cost of war. At the same time, Henry made great efforts to persuade the Pope that he was working for the peace of Christendom, while the Habsburgs were clearly interested only in their own political gain. This message went to the other courts of Europe as well. Now it suddenly seemed as though Henry was preparing for war, and that the king could not make up his mind. On the contrary, it seems that France did not in fact want war, but Henry was determined to remain firm on the Cleve question, and he indicated that he would fight if necessary. Henry was moving carefully. He didn't want to push Spain too far, but he had proof that the Spanish were up to no good. A reason for Henry's efforts to secure peace from 1601 can be explained fairly straightforwardly by the exhaustion of his kingdom, a result of the French Wars of Religion which had effectively consumed France in the second half of the 16th century, but also by the lobbying on the part of the papacy to secure a marital alliance between the Habsburgs and France. Anne of Austria was born in 1601, and were she united with the young Louis XIII, then surely Vienna, Madrid and Paris would come to better terms, with the Spanish Habsburgs also hopefully pulling their weight. At first, this initiative found success, but then the Pope died, and in the interim, the Spaniards seemed to drop their approval of the idea, even provoking border disputes and engaging in raids from Lorraine and Flanders into French territory. Henry now had a choice. He could accept the Habsburg intransigence, or he could try to confront and intimidate the Habsburgs by acting aggressively, but with a measure of finesse. Thus, it is possible to see Henry's intervention in the Ulich cleave crisis as a means for France to prove its seriousness in seeing satisfaction. Henry would paint the impression that he was willing to start a war with Spain, and that Ulich cleave was just the start. Not only did he build an army and send it to the northeast border, he also recruited allies, and from these allies, more allies like England came knocking once it seemed that the King of France meant business. King James agreed to send troops to Cleve Ulick. 
the Pope followed suit and began to put pressure onto Spain. Yet the King of France kept on postponing the departure of his troops. He did engage in some important diplomacy though. He formally requested permission from the Habsburg Archduke, who ruled the Spanish Netherlands, to let his troops pass through his lands on the way to Cleve, and he even went so far as to set up an elaborate series of public functions in Paris. Throughout the spring of 1610, Henry dallied, but there is good reason to suppose that this dallying was deliberate. As late as May 1610, before his assassination, it could not be said for sure what the King of France's true ends were. There is no proof that Henry wanted to do more in 1610 than stop the recent Spanish pressures, keep the Habsburgs from the Rhine, and build up a system of alliances. As one French minister wrote on the 3rd of June 1610, shortly after their king's death, But if our good master was not dead, he would not have had to bother to cross the Seine. The keys of Ulick would have been brought to him. All of Italy would have trembled and begun to rise in his favour. One historian has noted that with the Habsburgs shifting uncomfortably and giving ground under papal and diplomatic pressure, France could have acquired its ends peacefully without what may well have been a two-front war. What these ends were is debatable, but if the Ulick-Cleve crisis was settled peacefully in the Protestants' favour, then, with France having taught the Habsburgs a lesson on the Rhine, Henry would have been happy to settle for a marriage alliance with Spain as a means of protection and then to wait for future developments. Another train of thought stipulates that Henry acted with another goal in mind, to demonstrate to the minor German princes, now linked together in the Protestant Union, that he was ready to act, and to act in their interests. Since the Union had been arranged in 1608, French influence among the recalcitrant anti-Habsburg camp had declined, and this act, in the name of German Protestantism, could well have sent a clear message. It is worth noting that, where the King of Spain had been accepted as the protector of the Catholic League, King Henry of France had offered, but been politely turned down, when he had asked for the same arrangement for the Protestant Union. A clear demonstration of his respect for Protestant German constitutionalists would surely reverse this decline, and grant France greater powers to involve itself in Habsburg disputes in the future. If this is what Henry wanted, then he did not say so, and while it is not certain precisely what his goal was in stirring up trouble during the Ulick-Cleve crisis, it did anticipate the eruption of conflict between the French and the Habsburgs in 1635. If his aims were uncertain, then the impact his assassination left on France cannot be understated. King Henry's death had left a gaping hole in the vitality of French foreign policy. While it is not quite correct to say that the French abruptly became pro-Habsburg, it is true that France entered into a regency which lasted until October 1614, and that French foreign policy was not effectively organised and streamlined until the young king, Louis XIII, ejected his mother and her meddling friends and attempted to forge ahead with a policy of his own in 1620. French foreign policy was thus turned away from the Holy Roman Empire for a critical decade between 1610-20, to 20. but as we mentioned, it would be incorrect to claim that this lack of focus on combating the Habsburgs was a break with policy. On the contrary, there's good reason to suspect that King Henry IV had been orchestrating something of a campaign of peace, 
and that only the situation in Ulick Cleave moved him to raise an army and march, suggestively, to the border. It was in April 1611, less than a year after Henry's assassination, that a marriage agreement was negotiated with Spain. Louis XIII would marry a Spanish princess, and the Spanish prince Philip, later King Philip IV, would marry a French princess. These contracts were agreed in spite of the native protests of the Protestant Huguenots in France and the anger displayed towards Marie de Medici, the Queen Regent, and her foreign favourites. Louis XIII was have to grapple with these problems when he came of age, but between 1610-14, French foreign policy, while it contracted, did not cease to make an impact upon the continent. The tying of France and Spain closer together by marriage was the repetition of a practice which would provide the two countries with splendid marriages as well as a war of succession. For the moment, the removal of Henry blunted the French initiatives enough to ensure that no French invasion of the Rhine would be taking place. The great confrontation between the Habsburgs and Bourbons would be delayed for now. In the next episode, we'll resume this story, history friends, as we examine the elephant in the room this whole time. The Spanish, and their war with the Dutch, and the reasons for the Twelve Years' Truce in spring 1609. In addition, our narrative will take some time to look at England, and perhaps give us a peep at that other fascinating aspect of the Thirty Years' War story, Scandinavia. I hope you'll join me for that, but until then, my name is Zach. And this has been episode 4 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. And I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 